Let's pray. Father, we praise you because you are worthy to receive our praises. We adore you because you are already great. We don't lift you up. You are already above all things. You have created all things by your will and for your good pleasure. We praise you to bring our hearts and minds in line with reality. Though we are prone to distraction and lesser things compete for our affections, you alone are worthy of our whole mind, our whole body, and our whole life. And so we give ourselves wholly over to you. Forgive us, Father, for the way that we have held ourselves back from you. Forgive us for not treasuring enough the words of light and life you give us in our Bibles. Forgive us for apathy in reading and prayer. Forgive us for ignoring your commands. Your commands are good and bring us life. Forgive us when we set ourselves as judge over and above your good commandments. Grant us repentance. Grant us sorrow for our sin that leads to repentance so that when you return, we would be found watching for you and ready. Have mercy on us and give us endurance in our repentance. Father, we pray for those in our congregation who are hurt, ill, or struggling. We pray for full physical, emotional, and mental recovery. And more than that, we ask that you would use our weaknesses for good. Be glorified in our weaknesses. Use our weakness to remind us of your strength. Make yourself great in our lives. We pray specifically for Dr. Gary Brashears as his body battles cancer. We thank you for his dutiful service to you in his study and his teaching of the Bible. We have all directly and indirectly benefited from his loving service to you through teaching so many to love you through loving your word. We pray that you would heal him and give him many more years of service to you. In every moment, show your loving kindness to him, his family, and those close to him. And Lord, we pray for Anthony Mahalona as he heads to the hospital. We pray that you would uh, lower his fever and increase his oxygen levels. We pray that he would receive care and that his body would respond well and quickly to it. Even now in this moment, bring him healing and relief. We pray for Sierra and Kehlani. Pray that you would comfort them, give them peace, knowing that uh, their, her husband and her father are in your hands and you love him. We pray that we would be able to care for them well. Help us to know how to, how to serve them, how to make sure that they know your love through the way that we show kindness and care to them. Father, we thank you for the rain and we thank you for a place to gather where we are sheltered from it. Thank you for sheltering us from even greater storms, like the attacks of the enemy who looks to snuff out our faith. Thank you for giving us to each other as gifts of encouragement. Thank you for your discipline that shows us your love and keeps us near you. We pray that the preaching of your word now would keep us near to you. Draw us to your light so that you can use us to draw others. Through your, Holy, through your Holy Spirit, open our eyes and our ears to your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 You can have a seat. Thank you, Ryan. You can open up to Revelation 2. 
Revelation 2. We'll start a couple of verses back for context, but we'll be primarily in Revelation 2. As you're getting your notes and Bible out, how many of you have ever been to Disneyland? Anyone? Hey, everybody. All right. (laughs) There's a few of you that haven't. And how many of those of you who've gone have ever taken advantage of the fast passes for the rides? Anybody? Yeah. So some of you are familiar. For those of you that aren't, uh, what you do uh, with a fast pass is the fast pass system is a way for Disney to work crowd control and cause people to spread out throughout the park during busy times on certain rides. And what you do is you get a fast pass ticket at a popular ride that you'd like to go on. And this ticket tells you a later time to come back and reward. Uh, and the reward is, is that you can jump into a shorter line and get onto the ride faster. So it uses the principle of delayed gratification. Uh, to get you to go to other rides. Well, years ago, before Kelly and I had children, we took a quick vacation down to Disneyland together. And when it's just the two of you, you can move a little bit faster and more decisively. And so we decided we were going to work the fast pass system as much as possible. And so it was fun to strategize together and race through the park from ride to ride. And uh, there was this point, however, where we were so focused on working the system and packing in as many rides as possible that we kind of forgot why we were there, you know, to have fun and enjoy one another's company. Uh, And one evening when we were running between rides and trying to get in, in as many rides as possible, we were on Splash Mountain and the ride simply stopped. And this was a grace Because at first, we were super frustrated. Oh, this is going to wreck our system. Uh, It was going to ruin our strategy. But then we realized that it stopped for the fireworks. And we were on a bend uh, that was perfect for viewing the fireworks out in the open air. And we were the only two people in the ride. It was so fantastic. So there we were together, the only two people in the Splash Mountain car. And we simply sat and rejoiced in our time together watching fireworks. We stopped for a moment with the strategy And we remembered our purpose there. We remembered why we were there to love one another and have fun with one another, to enjoy each other's company. Now, from that moment on, we still strategized. We still definitely tried to work the fast pass system, but it was balanced with an enjoyment of why we were there in the first place. That balance was very important. Now, this balance is similar, uh, probably much more important, uh, that we're going to talk about today, but it's, it's similar to the balance that Christ is looking for in the church at Ephesus. What we're going to see today is that they had fulfilled their call from Jesus, from Paul, from Timothy, to protect the gospel and stand firm in good doctrine. And they stood firm against false teachers and errant disciples, but in the process, it seems, uh, they'd become a bit battle-hardened. And they'd forgotten why they were a church in the service of the King, Jesus Christ. They'd forgotten their purpose, their purpose to love the world with the proclamation of the gospel. And so this morning, the apostle and revelator John, uh, he's going to provide a word to the Ephesian church that is much needed to get get them back to the core of their mission. And I believe this is a word that is very timely and important for Mission Fellowship to hear as well. And so today, what we're going to see and what we're going to hear is a word to the Ephesian church as Christ tells them to be a witness to the light. This is what I've entitled the sermon for this morning, if you're taking notes. A word to the Ephesian church, be a witness to the light. Now let's begin this morning by reading the end of chapter 1, starting in verse 19, as a reminder of the flow of the letter uh, to the church across all time and space. And then we're going to read from our text this morning what I'm calling the micro-letter to the, book of, uh, to the church of Ephesus. 
So let's start there in Revelation 1.19. Jesus tells John, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. This is referring to the visions. The visions you've seen, the visions you're seeing, and the visions you will see. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And now he flows right into the letters to those churches. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent." Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's remember a few things about the book of Revelation as a whole, and then about the structure of the book before we unpack these seven verses this morning. And then next week I'll do the same thing, I'll give you a little bit more about the structure of the books. I could probably spend an entire teaching just on that one piece. But first, remember that this book is a single revelation. It is not, as many of us are apt to say, revelations. Okay, It's a single revelation. Now, it's important that it's a single revelation because it's about one thing, or really, one person. Who's that about? Jesus Christ. Recall the first words of the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. Now, this is of the utmost importance because the contemporary church has gotten so focused on the idea of futuristic apocalyptic events that many have started to think that the point of the book is to reveal future events as revelations. See the difference? It is, though, in fact, a revelation, singular, of Jesus Christ to his church. And therefore, chapters 1 through 3 are not less important than the remaining part of the book, but in fact, chapters 1 through 3 set the stage for the rest of the book. And we'll get more on that next week. Now also, remember that this book is in the style of an apocalyptic prophet in terms of language, but it's structured as a letter, an epistle to the church as a whole. Then within the overall epistle, which is the entirety of the book, that's sent to the church, it's sent specifically at the beginning to the church throughout Asia Minor, where there are individual churches, seven churches specifically, that we'll be looking at over the next month and a half. So it is indeed to each church, but the words given to each church are also for all other churches to hear as well, including Mission Fellowship. In other words, we can glean truth and wisdom, Correction and encouragement from all seven of these, what I'm calling, mini-letters within the larger overall letter. You guys following so far? All right. Now, the structure of each letter will seem similar, with a couple of the letters missing one of the parts here or there, but those missing pieces are obvious and intentional, and we'll hit them as we go. But the overall structure of each will have a few things. 
It'll have a salutation at the beginning that will reference back to chapter 1 in the vision of Jesus Christ. It'll have commendation and exhortation and warning, which will all reference forward to what's going to play out through the rest of the book. And finally, it will have a promised reward that will reference the very end of the book in the paradise of God. Now, each will finish with the exhortation to have ears to hear, which we will dig into more in a bit. But the structure is very, very important, and we'll break that down a bit more as we go. So let's begin by unpacking them. And what we see first is this letter to the church at Ephesus. This was written to a local congregation like Mission Fellowship there in Ephesus. And what we see first is a salutation, a salutation from the true light of the world there in verse 1. A salutation from the true light of the world. In order to understand Revelation and understand what Jesus is giving to John to give to the church, we have to get very used to thinking in symbolism and in pictures. And so today we're going to delve right into the deep end of the pool in terms of pictures and symbols. In verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1, we are given the commission of Jesus to John, as we saw last week, to write the visions that he has seen in chapter 1 and send them to the church. Chapter 1 was about Jesus, and he's going to write those and send them to the church. Now, this vision of Jesus has at its core this idea of one who is the light. Think with me for a moment. Let's paint the picture of the biblical theology, the biblical theme of light and dark throughout the word. Immediately, things will pop into your head, but let's think about what light is. Light illuminates. That's the point of light. It helps bring clarity to the reality of truth. The kingdom of light is God's kingdom from which his wisdom comes and illumines our path so that we can see what is real and true. The enemy of God, the adversary, Hasatan in the Hebrew, Satan, is at the head of the kingdom of darkness in which he is the father of lies. He is the accuser, the slanderer, and the one who desires the opposite of truth. He desires instead to deceive the nations and keep them, so to speak, in the dark. The bad news of our sin is that rather than follow the truth of God's command and wisdom, we, in our first mother and father as humanity, decided to believe the lie and be voluntarily deceived in this lie that God is not good and that he can't be trusted. And that we can become like him and usurp his throne, deciding for ourselves what is good and evil. It's a practice we play out every single day as we choose to not obey Christ. We gave our world and ourselves over to the accuser and deceiver, and we're blinded to the truth. That is the bad news. But the good news of God's gospel is that he pierced through the darkness with the light of his word through the prophets out of his people Israel. And they foretold of a plan of salvation centered on a Messiah. And at the appropriate time, the Father God sent forth this Messiah, the true light, in his Son, Jesus Christ, to bear witness to the truth of who God is. And this was the truth of our earlier reading from John. Lauren read it to us just a moment ago. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word, uh, sorry, was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. 
a different John than the one who wrote Revelation. But it's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Who is that true light? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the incarnate light, the fullness of God's image. By looking at Jesus and allowing his light to illumine truth, we see reality. We know our own folly and sin, and we know our need for reconciliation with Christ. This light was what was promised beforehand all throughout the Old Testament prophets. Our earlier reading from Isaiah 42, you guys should get used to this and really key in on the readings that we do because they're going to be used and referenced throughout the teaching. But our earlier reading from Isaiah 42, it speaks of Jesus as the Lord's Messiah when it says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Do you see the imagery, the picture, the symbolism? God came in the form of his incarnate son to shine his light to the nations. Only Christ is both the very light of God and the covenant of the people. For in his death and resurrection, the new covenant, the covenant that would never disappear, it was established, never to be broken again. But God didn't stop there in just the Messiah. He is a God who always works through incarnate means. His light has always been intended to reflect off of his image bearers so that the world might know him. This was the plan with Adam and Eve. This was the plan with Israel. The people of Israel were to be the reflectors of his light as they followed in the wisdom of his law. But we know the story. Israel did not fulfill that call. And while individual Israelites were indeed faithful, they were overall powerless to do so as a nation because they elevated the law of God to be the way of salvation the way of righteousness, instead of looking to the gracious covenant through which God had chosen and anointed them. Instead of looking to God, they looked to themselves and their own righteousness. So a little bit later in Isaiah, Isaiah has a beautiful prophecy that pictures Israel being called to this task, but at the same time realizing they won't do it. Isaiah 49.3 says, he says to Israel, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. But then later in the chapter, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. When we read Isaiah 49, we become confused because we say, Well, Israel was to be his servant that shines his light to the nations. But then later, it seems like he's talking about an individual that will save Israel itself. Well, unfortunately, Israel was unfaithful to their covenant with God. And as a result, their temple was destroyed and they went into exile in Babylon. After 70 years, the exiles in Babylon started to return to Israel and rebuild their temple. And the prophets were sent to call them to this task of being the light. And one of the prophets that was sent to preach to the people during this time was Zechariah. Would you turn with me there in your Bibles? Uh, Most of you have probably never, ever turned to this section of Scripture. Zechariah is not one of the ones I hear people say, oh, yeah, I was in Zechariah the other day. Go to Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4. If you don't know where it is, you can look in your table of contents. 
Zechariah chapter 4. We're going to read the first seven verses, and these verses are going to be confusing because it's in prophetic imagery. But I'm going to walk you through why this is important to understand in this section of Revelation as well as in another portion that we'll look at later. Zechariah 4, verse 1. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? Okay, so we've got vision. We've got imagery here, a dream. Zechariah says, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said, do you not know what these are? I love how the angels are always like, come on, you don't know? (laughs) And the humans are always like, yeah, I don't know. Help me here, right? Okay, what are these, my Lord? He says, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. You guys know exactly what he's talking about here, right? No, not at all. Well, here Zechariah is given a vision of a golden lampstand. This is an old mosaic that pictures it. I think it's pretty beautiful. And this lampstand has seven lamps or little little, uh, places where the fire will come out. It was the same as the lampstand that stood in the temple to provide light to the priests as they ministered to God. On either side in the vision is an olive tree, which symbolically keeps the light going by providing the olive oil to light the lampstand. Now, we're going to revisit this image again in Revelation, so if you don't get it the first time around, you'll get it next time. But the overall message here is that the leader of the returning exiles, Zerubbabel, would lead the rebuilding of the temple, and it would be completed by the power of the Spirit of God so that everything that's hard will become easy, and they'll build this temple to the point where they'll put the top stone on it, and they'll shout grace, grace to it. Only God could help us do this. It's speaking of the temple. Now, if you feel like these images are kind of muddled in your head, just hold on throughout Revelation, and you're going to become an expert. This lampstand is symbolic here in Zechariah for the temple of God as a whole, the place from which the light of God's glory reflects through the worship of his people, and it would go to the nations and illumine the darkness and draw the nations to God's light. But ethnic Israel was never meant to be the fullness of the light. In fact, they could not be. And so John 1 tells us that he sent his son to be this light, full of grace and truth, the very light of God. And Jesus came and displayed the kingdom of God in all he did and said, and then he died in our place, and in the place of the rebellious Israelites, atoning for our sins as the spotless sacrifice, and rising again from the grave three days later. He proved his victory over the kingdom of darkness and displayed the light of God's life for all to see. But the light didn't end there. This symbolism that is heavy throughout the Old Testament spoke of the fact that God would send a Messiah, yes, to be a light to the people of God, but that that light would eventually reflect through his covenant people. Now look with me again here in Zechariah really quickly. What does it say? It says, not by might nor by power, 
but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And this, dear friends, is what occurred on the day of Pentecost. Remember what happened there in Acts chapter 2? The apostles were praying together. And this is what it says. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And you know the story. They went out, and what did they do? They spoke in the native language of each of these devout men, speaking to them what? The gospel of the kingdom of God, the light of God's truth. Now, Pentecostal theology has hijacked this imagery and made it about speaking in ecstatic utterances. I say this not to slander Pentecostals or those of you who might speak in ecstatic prayer, but I say this to acknowledge that this idea dominates the contemporary church to the point when we read this, all we see is the word tongues. I want to ask you to put that idea aside for a moment and think through the symbolism that we have played out thus far in this idea of flames, of fire, of light. I want you to think for a second, what were the apostles in that moment? They were a lampstand, witnessing to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word tongues of fire, it's a word that just simply means the fire looked like that. It was cloven. It's not speaking about ecstatic utterances. In that moment, the people of God, by the Spirit of God, were overcome so that they could go out and do what? Proclaim in intelligible language the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, these same disciples were proclaiming the gospel in the native languages of the Gentiles in Jerusalem that were there for the festival of Pentecost. At that moment, the apostles and the fledgling disciples collectively became the lampstand of God's whole people. They became the beginnings of the new temple of God in which his spirit dwells, the church. They were the true Israel of God, as Paul calls the church in Galatians in which both Jew and Gentile are able to proclaim the truth of the gospel and in so doing, act as the reflection of Christ, the light to the nations. The church became the offspring of Abraham through grace by faith, which was now blessing the Gentiles. They became the lampstand. So in Revelation, go back there with me. What does it say that Jesus is doing, standing amidst what? The lampstands. And who are the lampstands? They are the seven churches. Who are the angels that represent them in the heavenly realm? The seven stars that Daniel says shine like the stars of the heaven. Jesus is standing amidst his witnesses, proclaiming the truth of the gospel. So notice chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. What is your work? To preach, to proclaim. Your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. This, dear friends, is the symbolism, this idea of the flames and the lampstands and the light. 
This is the symbolism that John the Revelator is calling upon for his first letter in Revelation. He is reminding the church that they, that we, are called to be a light to the nations so that the blind might see, the deaf might hear the truth of God's word and gospel. This letter to Ephesus and the entirety of Revelation is from the true light of the world to those that are called to reflect his light to all that surround them. The first thing that we see, or the next thing that we see in verses 2 and 3 that we just read is a commendation. A commendation that they have stood firm in good doctrine. We see this in verses 2 and 3 and even verse 6. And if you're a person who has a background in Pentecostal theology or has family members in Pentecostal theology, I would beg of you not to reel because I just may have put a chink in the armor of Pentecostal theology, but instead go look at it and ask yourself, is this symbolism true? Is this the line of thought that the author is trying to portray? What we see next in verses 2 and 3 is that we have been blessed as a church with the spirit that gives us the ability to stand firm in good doctrine. Now we, at Mission, we've been even more blessed because we've been studying deeply the depths of the letters to the Ephesians, the first pastoral epistle uh, to the Ephesians in 1 Timothy. And in those studies, if you've been around for those, we've seen that one of the main calls that Paul has for that church and its leaders is to protect the flock from false teachers, from false witness, and from a false gospel that would pervert the work of Christ. Now, this local body of believers at Ephesus, they had been through a lot, as we read in 1 Timothy, as we read in Ephesians a few years ago. And Jesus, as he is amongst his church by his perfect Holy Spirit, knows all that they had been going through. He stands among the lampstands. Church, when you feel like Jesus is not present, the word tells us that our senses don't get to make the call of truth. He is amongst us. He had seen there at Ephesus how they had worked to strengthen their doctrine and service, how they had endured even in the midst of people in their church that were acting in ways which did not glorify Christ. We recall to mind here the sections from 1 Timothy that we studied previously. There we heard of false teachers such as Hymenaeus and Alexander those that pursued godliness for unjust gain of wealth, those who devoted themselves to deceitful teachings of demons, forbidding what God had called good. And in the midst of all of it, Ephesus had stood firm against these false disciples and teachers. For a few decades by this point, they had been hard at this work. The phrase bearing up meant that Jesus had seen that they had endured patiently in extremely trying circumstances, that may have made others falter and give up. But in spite of this, the Ephesians had not grown weary. We see this in verse 6, too. There in verse 6, it says, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. They had warred against a group called the Nicolaitans that had such errant doctrine that it says Jesus hated them. Friends, realize that Jesus hates false doctrine and false teachers. If you're a person who teaches your kids that we don't hate, you need to correct that. We hate the appropriate things. We hate false doctrine. The idea is that he hated their attempt to infiltrate the people of God and twist their good doctrine. We will look at the Nicolaitans again in the letter to Pergamum. They were a sect that seemed to accommodate the pagan society, allowing the church to become polluted with the ideologies of the world around them. And Jesus hated it. 
But this church had proven that they were tough. The church probably had extremely strong ecclesiology and a passion for good doctrine and obedience within the local church, a love of the word of God. And all of these statements are a commendation, a statement that these are good things that must, must, uh, must not go undone because a church that is too flippant in what it, it teaches, too flippant in who it allows to teach, too flippant in theology, or too flippant in who it gives authority to, this is a church that will quickly crumble, or worse yet, will remain standing in error as a proclamation of a false gospel. And this is why, dear brothers and sisters, we at Mission take all that we do so seriously at this church. This is why we focus so heavily on doctrine and proper exegesis. This is why we vet leadership and members and are cautious as to who we let have any form of influence in this church. And I wonder, for each of you individually, do you individually take these things as seriously as Christ does? Do you individually think of these things as important? These are things like Ephesus that God is pleased with and that we need to continue growing in. So I can say to those of you who have been here, those of you who have built this church, well done for holding firm. Jesus has the same commendation for you that no matter what comes our way, we have held firm to our single most important trait, which is that we want to be a church founded upon the un undiluted word of God. Amen? Amen? Now at the same time, as with most things in the Bible, there's a balance. And so Jesus balances out this commendation that he would have for Ephesus, that he would have hopefully for us, for standing firm in the truth. He balances it with a weighty and powerful and important exhortation. We see this next in verse 4, an exhortation to remember that doctrine serves witness. Remember that doctrine serves witness. Let's take a look at verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now let's pause for a moment here because there is a word in the midst of this that is a minefield, the word love. Our world has redefined this and redefined it again and redefined it again to the point where it's lost all meaning. It now means let everybody do whatever they want in their own eyes. We define the word with our contemporary definition as positive regard or lack of negativity or affirming what someone else believes or acts on regardless of whether or not it aligns with God's truth. Friends, these are not love. And this idea falls flat when we realize that this church was commended for speaking truth and bearing up with truth. Love has to have truth in it or else it is not love. And so we look at the surrounding context and all that we've studied thus far this morning to help us understand what they're referring to in losing their first love. Many of us approach this text and we read it and we think this romantic idea, kind of like when you lose the love for your sweetheart from high school. But let's think through it. The context thus far speaks of the light of God, the one who no one has seen, who dwells in unapproachable light. He manifested himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He poured out his spirit into his people so that they might be lamps within the lampstand of the local church in whom the spirit of God would dwell and empower them to the witness of the good news of Jesus. The good news that he died for our sins, resurrected in victory over sin, over death and hell, 
and has been enthroned as the Son of Man over the nations. And so this is what the churches were called to be, a lampstand, a light of the truth. And interestingly enough, this had been what Paul called the very church at Ephesus too. We have the blessing of a letter to that very church. Think through some of the scriptures from the book of Ephesians with me. Think of this one. This is Ephesians 3, 8 through 10. Paul says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The gospel of Jesus, which had worked to bring salvation not just to ethnic Israel, but to all nations, Israel included, was now to be proclaimed through the apostles like Paul so that the church could be built up as citizens of the kingdom under the reign of Christ. And the local church could be the lampstand that brings the light brings to light the mystery hidden for ages in God, that Jesus Christ would bring salvation and conquer the rulers and authorities in heavenly places and reign forever. All of this background speaks to the fact that the local church has a primary mission to proclaim the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ made known to the world. And so Paul called the local church at Ephesus, and he calls Mission Fellowship, and he calls every church that is a true church to make known the light of this truth through how they act and live towards one another. A simple quote from later in Ephesians, he says this, For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. The church of Ephesus and any local church is intended to be a light to the world that is enslaved in darkness and error. And it is as the members of that church delight in and love Jesus Christ that they learn how to love one another and grow into the body of Christ and all of this is for the purpose of being a light to those around them. Friends, our whole reason for existence, the whole reason for mission fellowship to ever exist is so that we can be built up as the body of Christ and be united in Christ so that we can go from this place and be lamps lighting the path to Christ. If the church loses its love for the lost, it loses its witness. And if it loses its witness, it loses its purpose. Each of us individually has been given a call to evangelize the world around us by our words and actions that show that we submit to the reign of Christ and to call the lost to give their lives to our Lord as well. Friends, you have been tricked in this season into thinking you are proclaiming the gospel by wearing a mask or getting a vaccine or jumping on board one of the bandwagons. That is not the gospel. Wear your mask, don't wear your mask. It doesn't matter. What matters is the proclamation of the gospel. 
Christians are known by their love for Christ, their love for his gospel, and their love for one another. And we need to be evangelists to that point. That's our whole reason for existence. I know I'm going to get emails from some of you. Hans at missionsalem.com. I won't reply. The church at Ephesus had gotten so battle-hardened and so focused on protecting their doctrine that they had forgotten that their first and foremost calling in that doctrine and truth was to proclaim a gospel to a dying world. Love and be faithful to God. Love and be faithful to each other. And by this faithful love, the world will know that you are the disciples of Christ who so loved his creation that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, in this line, Jesus was reminding the church at Ephesus that good doctrine is great, but its entire point is to serve the witness of the church. Its entire point is to protect the witness of the church. Now, this is an important truth for us at Mission. As we have grown in theology, as we have grown in strong ecclesiology, we need to always be checking ourselves that we are balancing truth and love. Not a love that is based in romantic thought or therapeutic positive regard, but a love that is truthful with a heart that all might come to know Christ. Mission Fellowship, we have spent years getting our house in order. And now it is time to go and invite the non-believing world to come and see the light of Christ that reflects through your love for one another and our collective proclamation of the gospel. And friends, I know we look around this room and we go, oh, there's only a few seats open. We don't want to get too many more people here. Friends, let it overflow. Let there be people out the door, in the atrium, upstairs. Let people come to hear the gospel proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Our house has been brought into order so that we can proclaim the gospel and invite people in to the family of God. Amen. Brothers and sisters, when was the last time you shared your faith with a non-believer? When was the last time you purposefully engaged in ongoing prayer for someone who you work with or live with who does not know Christ? Churches are not either inward-facing or outward-facing. They are both. They love one another. We love one another so that we might then go to the world and call them into this family that loves one another so well. I want to make sure, and we as your elders want to make sure that when we all stand before the Lord on the day of judgment, Christ is able to say to us, Mission Fellowship, by your actions I could see that you loved me, that you loved one another, and that you loved the lost world that surrounded you. You kept your first love. Because if we don't have this love, brothers and sisters, Christ has a warning for Ephesus that I think we need to heed. It's a warning that to lose your witness is to lose your purpose. So repent. Let's read again from verse 5 in Revelation. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. 
If the church is to be the lampstand upon which the members of the church act as lamps, letting the light of the Spirit of God shine through them with the good news of Jesus, then friends, what happens when the church is no longer acting within their purpose? Christ said this in Matthew 5, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Friends, what good is a lamp that does not shine light? The answer, it's worthless, and it's thrown out into the garbage. Jesus' disciples, his people, are the light of the world. The church is the true Israel of God, made up of Jew and Gentile, that breaks the darkness with the light of the truth of the gospel. Mission Fellowship, and especially those of you who have endured for the last few years, you have grown in leaps and bounds in terms of your grasp of Scripture, your soundness of doctrine, your beautiful understanding of covenant membership. But let us not forget that the whole reason that we have done this work is so that we are assured that when we invite the lost world outside our doors in to see what Christ has done in our midst, they see the truth of Jesus Christ and his gospel. They see an obedient and unified people. Friends, this is not my strategy for evangelism. It's the strategy of the apostles. Let me give you an example. Paul was writing to the church at Corinth to help them grow in many of the areas I feel like the Lord has been graciously growing in our church. And in 1 Corinthians 14, he's talking specifically of the order and good doctrine that needs to be informing the corporate worship of the local body on Sundays. And there he speaks to one of the main reasons for that order in liturgy. I want you to listen to this carefully. This is from 1 Corinthians 14, 24 through 25. He says, But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Now, friends, the contemporary church has tricked us into believing that if we have really good worship music, if we tug on the heartstrings and I give a really great TED Talk that's motivational and encouraging, we've already lost out because we have no smoke machines or lasers. But if you do these things and you do them well and you have really darn good coffee, then somebody will finally admit that they need to know Jesus. Friends, that's human strategy. That is not of the Lord. The strategy of the Lord is to build a people sanctified by his grace, built in his truth, obedient and unified in his gospel. And when the world comes amongst us, they will fall on their face and worship God and declare that God is really among you. And notice that it says all, multiple times. Friends, you are not the one person who just comes here and hangs out and then goes home. If you come to this church, you are participating in our evangelistic strategy to be a people built up by God to proclaim his glory. For it's in us being sent individually into our spheres of influence and then being gathered again to our corporate worship as a family of Christ that God does his evangelistic work. We shine as lights in a dark world, but then come together as the body of Christ to draw everyone to the gospel of Jesus. And if we are not participating in this process as a church, John the Revelator tells the church at Ephesus, you may be removed from the presence of Christ. 
you are in danger of not even being a church any longer. To lose your witness is to lose your purpose. So repent. Mission Fellowship, there is no end to what Christ can do through this church. The only thing that holds us back from being the light of the world is our own affections. God has promised us that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, that we will reflect him and draw others to him. And this drawing comes from being different than the world, speaking truth when there is confusion, standing firm in conviction and trust in sovereignty when the world is cowering in fear, standing firm in faithfulness to a community when the world prides itself on autonomy and division at the first sign of conflict, and submitting to the reign of God in obedience when the world cries out for you to be king or queen and be obedient to no one but yourself. This is how we stand apart. And the Lord is not done drawing his people out of darkness in Salem and Kaiser. Will you commit, dear brothers and sisters, to evangelizing the lost and drawing them to Christ through this church? If you are a member of this church, we have affirmed for you that you know the gospel. And so it's now time to go out and proclaim it. You are the light of the world. Let the light shine in the darkness, for the darkness will not overcome it. If we endure in this love for Christ, for his people, and for the world to witness, then we know what awaits us. And that's a reward that's promised at the end of this mini-letter. A reward, reconciliation with the source of life. Verse 7, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. These last two statements at the end of this mini letter are heavily styled in the way of the Old Testament and the Old Testament prophets. For it was their pronouncements of God's truth that would cause the rebellious to turn and hear and repent or be hardened in their heart further still. And John is calling the church of Ephesus, and by extension, all of us in all times and locales, to heed his message to endure in being a bright witness of the gospel to the world around us. Friends, when the gospel is preached, listeners will either turn and repent in conviction, or they will be hardened further still. A pastor or preacher who's doing his job, there will be people that leave that room at the end of the preaching... And some will be angry, and some will be rejoicing. That is what the Word of God does. And so this last statement of hear what the Spirit says to the church is, is calling the church to soften their heart, to humble themselves, and hear the message, the exhortation of what's been given. And this last piece here, this last sentence of reward, calls to mind the imagery of the fall in the garden. Our first mother and father were forever barred from eating the tree of life in the temple-like Garden of Eden. But because of Christ, the one who is the light of life, and because of his atoning work on the cross for each one of us, he has made the way for us to enter back into the presence of God. There is no more angelic sentry to keep us from approaching the source of life. 
There is no more curtain or veil to keep us from standing in the presence of the glory of God. Jesus has reconciled us by his blood. He has done it all, and it is finished. We can enter into the presence of the Most High King. All that remains is the promise of eternal life in God's presence. And so this word conquer here is not one of military might, but strength of endurance. We do not fight and overthrow flesh and blood, but we battle against the spiritual forces around us and within us that cry out to usurp the authority of Christ. And so conquering for us is to follow in the image of our king, to crucify the flesh with all its desires and die to our own reign as authority so that we might resurrect in newness of life in love with Christ and in love for one another. Friends, our moment of baptism, your moment of baptism was the outward sign of this inaugurated state of being in our lives. The practice of the Lord's Supper that we partake each week together is a reminder of our status in Christ, and it looks forward to the promise of his consummated kingdom. And so John, speaking to a worn out and tired and battle-weary church like Ephesus, spoke to them to faithfully endure in the fight, to stand firm in the gospel, to stand firm in the love that was its outflow and is its outflow, and to realize that all that they suffered in the moment, all that they crucify in their battle against sin, that it will be worth more than they could imagine. And friends, he says the same to a worn out and tired mission fellowship. He says the same thing to each one of you who fight so heavily for the faith, who stand firm in good doctrine and in truth, who stand firm in working to crucify the flesh and its desires. Friends, the reward will be worth more than you can ever imagine. Because one day, we, like Christ, will resurrect to glory and we will stand in the paradise of God and partake in the everlasting life that he has offered. This week, as you encounter difficulty, whether it's fighting your own sin or fighting someone else's, whether it's being a parent who just can't wait for heaven because your kids just won't listen, whether it's being a child who can't wait for heaven because your parents just won't listen, (laughs) whatever you come against, whether at work or at home, Remember this image, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Brothers and sisters, do you remember how excited you were when you heard the good news of the gospel? You were so excited that you wanted the world to know the king and savior who saved you. And maybe that's died away a bit. But Christ is calling us to remember that love. Salvation came not just so that you could be saved from your sin, and then the work of salvation was done, but so that you might proclaim the good news that you have learned so that the world might know it's God. So lift up your eyes and remember that love this morning. Brothers and sisters, as a church, we have been through some heartbreak, even lately. As individuals, each of us have been suffering in different ways. But in the midst of all of it, Christ is calling us to remember the love that Christ has for us, 
so that we might respond in faithfulness to him and his people and so that we might fulfill our calling to be a witness of his glory. 